For the last several weeks, I've been talking about uh, Zacchaeus. And um, actually, this is part four. You can find, uh, theoretically, you can find the first three on our website, queencity.church under messages. So, um, But this is the fourth one I've done. And uh, the relationship, the history between Jesus and Zacchaeus is so remarkable. Uh, as we look through it and pray through it, get revelation we see the heart of jesus in life-changing ways and um the bible says to know him is life everlasting everlasting life's in a person it's not the concept it's not in the truth it's not in the building it's not in the church it's in one singular person named the lord jesus and uh you know my prayer and this is going to be my prayer father i pray that people would know you lord jesus i pray that people would know you not um, not just religious things or concepts or notions or theology alone or all those different things. Some become substitutes, but Lord, they know you. And in knowing you, they would be alive and they could determine in whatever degree they have not been alive, they have not, that that's not you. Lord, help us. Weed out all the imitations and the faults and the fake and the frightening and the fearful and the condemning things until, Lord, you just overwhelm us with who you are. Um, I ask that, Father, for all of us in your name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's read this together. Why don't you stand up with me? Out loud. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place He looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, there we go again. You remember remember them? You, You can't let them get between you and him. And don't be them. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be with a guest with the man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation. I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Just leave that up there a second. A couple of things I want to I say. The Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save. You can go ahead and sit down. To seek 
and to save. You know, there's another whole chapter in the Gospel of Luke that talks about uh, a lost, lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son or the prodigal son. And the idea is that each of those things were being pursued because they had uh, an intrinsic or innate value to them. And one of the things I've done before is I've taken a $100 bill and I've said, you know, look at this $100 bill, what's that worth? And of course the answer would be $100 and then I would hide it somewhere, act like it was lost. And I said, well now that it's lost, what's it worth? $100. And see, the truth is, Jesus saving you doesn't give you value. It begins to show you your value. And see, if you read this plainly for what it says, Jesus said salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house because he was a son of Abraham. Him coming to that house did not make him a son of Abraham. Salvation came to that house because he was. Now, what was it to be a son of Abraham? Well, that was the highest compliment Jesus could give anyone. And Jesus said, this man is also. Jesus was saying, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm the prototypical son of Abraham. I'm the seed of Abraham. You'd have to go into a whole lot of other doctrine teaching to get the full implication. But every, even today, even you, even me, even now, everything we receive from God, we receive on the basis of being Abraham's seed. His offspring. We sprang out of Jesus. Jesus was that seed promised to Abraham thousands of years ago. When, when the Pharisees were hostile and they had, they had heard the story of Jesus' mother having a child before she was married, they called Jesus illegitimate. They called him a bastard, the scripture says. They said to him, we're sons of Abraham, meaning you aren't. So the only legitimate son of Abraham in all creation stood before religious people and religious people couldn't recognize who he really was. And see, what Jesus does for people is he tells them who they are. A lot of people think the most holy thing a spiritual person can do is to discover what sin somebody is involved in. That's the negative side of religious things, but how many people can call someone else into their identity, into the high place God's called them? You see, one of the problems with so-called prophetic things is it's just identifying problems, 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 what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. Even, even in our general election, smoke and mirrors, ladies and gentlemen, from both sides of the aisle. But who can identify what's right 
in the sense that they're affirming and honoring and have the capacity to bring people up into that realm of experience. Well, that's who Jesus is. And see, the crazy thing is Jesus identifies Zacchaeus. He says, you also, you're like me, Zacchaeus. We're sons of Abraham. We're legit. We're the real thing. Well, who was Zacchaeus? Well, he was a man who didn't live up to his parents' expectations. His name means just or pure or innocent. He was an impure, unjust man, guilty of greed and financial fraud as a tax collector. His countrymen, fellow countrymen, hated him. Why? Because he collected taxes to support Rome's occupational army. See, Israel was paying Rome to occupy Israel through their taxes. He was considered to be a traitor because he worked for Rome. He defrauded people. He took more money from people than their taxes, uh, than the proper amount. He was estranged and scorned by religious leaders. He was considered to be the highest form of sinner by the Pharisees. And he was a short person, could have affected the way he saw himself, the choices he made in life. So who was Zacchaeus before he ran into Jesus? Scorned by his community, despised by the religious elite, a disappointment to his parents, a traitor to the nation, a deeply flawed, disrespected man. And what does Jesus say to him? Son of Abraham. See, he sees things in you, you don't see in yourself. But until you see them, you don't become them. I've mentioned this before. If you're in the right light and you look directly into someone else's eyes and they look directly into your eyes, you will see yourself in their, the pupil of their eyes. And see, when Jesus is looking at you, what he is seeing is himself. You as part of him. The body of Christ, we're bone of his bone, we're flesh of his flesh, we're one man. There are, only, there are only two men in the world right now, there are only two people in the world, not billions, two, Adam and Jesus. The fallen man and the risen man, there are only two people in the world, you're either one or the other. So when he looks into your eyes, he sees himself, and he begins to call out of you what he sees there. I've got to, and I recommend it, this, this studylight.org, and it, uh, there are 105 commentaries, and a lot of people put down commentaries, um, but you've got 105 people reading these Bible stories, some of them whose lives were dedicated to doing that, so I like to go read what they have to say. I remember one time Eric Kirchin and I were preaching on the same passage of scripture and I pe preached one week and had one message. He came back the next week and had a completely different message from the same verses of scripture. And I thought, that's marvelous. There's so much in there. It takes more than one set of eyes sometimes. Um, so in one of those commentaries, we see this episode where Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and sees him 
completely different than every single other person in town. And the way they saw him did him no good at all. The way Jesus saw him changed his life. One of the commentators says, In the look which Jesus gave him, quote, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, singling Zacchaeus out from all others. He must have seen something of a purpose toward himself, which would at once arrest his attention. Then, his addressing him by name, as perfectly familiar with him, though he had never seen or heard of him before, this would fill him with amazement and make the thought instantly flash across his mind. This must be the Christ he claims to be. I mean, you would assume Jesus knew who he was. That's why he knew his name. That's probably a bad assumption. There were 100,000 people in Jericho. He was one of any number of tax collectors in Jericho. Why would he know his name? I believe Jesus had that supernatural thing working. Calls him by name. Opens Zacchaeus' heart up. Jesus says, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. Nobody else wanted to eat with him. Here's this guy, um, miracle worker, amazing man. Is this the Christ? That was the rep he was getting. That was the language about him. And of everyone in Jericho, and Jericho was a city of priests. That was the they who murmured and complained when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. Of all those people, he chooses Zacchaeus, not to just speak to, to, to probably spend the night with, live in that house, go in there, eat with him, fellowship with him. Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. Jesus invites himself right into his life. This commentator goes on, the conscious majesty of it and the power with which it was spoken, as if sure of instant and glad obedience, doubtless completed the conquest of Zacchaeus' mind and heart. But these, though the avenues through which Christ found his way into Zacchaeus' heart, must not be regarded as the whole explanation of the change upon him. You know, that's the thing I love about true Christianity. You can't really tell people how it works. Because it's not a matter of crossing T's and dotting I's. It's a matter of a relational encounter with an invisible person many people don't even believe exists. How are you going to tell somebody how it works? You can give them the four spiritual laws. Some people read the four spiritual laws, have an encounter with God. Other people just have an academic situation. I can't tell you how this works. And I've only been at it 55 years. But I can tell you who makes it work. And I can tell you if you put your trust in him, Jesus, he will reveal himself to you. In ever-increasing ways, as long as you don't go back, as long as you don't quit. And even if you quit, he'll haunt you. But he won't make you do anything. Anybody who wants to can go to hell. Anybody who wants to can go to heaven. Your choice. Pretty profound. 
Another, the Expositor's Greek Testament has this. Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name. How? Not indicated. Uttered in cordial tones as if he were speaking to a familiar friend whom he was glad to see and with whom he means to stay that day. What a delightful surprise, that salutation, and how irresistible its friendly frankness. And so when Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, it was like he was speaking to an old friend. Jesus has this amazing capacity to transmit to us um, who he is in ways you can't really put into words. But when it's done, you're different. You change. Jesus saw something in Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus had not yet seen in himself. And it changed his life. Proverbs 29, 18. Because there's no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Do you remember the portion there? um, I don't know if it's still up there. I've got it here in my Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. That portion where it says he sought to see who Jesus was but could not because of the crowd, because he was short. His vision was obscured. People were between him and Jesus. You can't let people get between you and Jesus. You can't let preachers. You can't let church. You can't let your husband. Really, come on, your wife, your mother-in-law, your aunt, your uncle, mean Christians, ISIS, CNN, Fox. Nobody can get between you and Jesus if you're going to continue to walk in a way that makes your life make sense. And you have got to maintain this vital connection or you'll go back. You will. You'll go back. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. What does that mean? I could give you a list of people's names right now that have somehow let people get between them and their revelation and vision of Jesus and they have casted off restraint and their living ways they never even lived before in that sort of sinful lifestyle way because they lost their vision. They lost that revelation of who Jesus is. Somebody, something, some episode, some event, some personality, some concept, some opinion, some idea, embodied in some kind of relational problem, got between them and Jesus. Without a vision, the people made naked, it says in one translation. Where there's no vision, people are unrestrained. Where there's no vision, the people perish. You can't let anything get between you and him. That's your job. That's the only job you have. When Zacchaeus saw about himself what Jesus saw, his behavior, and his energy level changed. There are a number of places where Jesus affirmed people in remarkable ways. Let's go to this last, uh, I have one more slide. Let's look at this together. I love this story. There are a lot, I love a lot of stories in the Bible. There's some I don't like as much. 
W.C. Fields was reading the Bible on his deathbed, and they said, W.C., what are you doing? Looking for loopholes. <laughs> Mark Twain was reading his Bible on his deathbed. What are you doing, Mark? Mark, do you understand that? And he said, oh, yeah, there's a lot I don't understand, but it's the stuff I do that scares me the most. Anyway, Philip, you don't have to read this out loud. Just listen. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was that a compliment, ladies and gentlemen? Does not sound like one. Philip said to him, come and see. Okay, now listen. Here's, here's my understanding, and I'll show you why I believe this. I believe Jesus saw Nathaniel talking to Philip under that fig tree and heard exactly what Philip said. The rest of it. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, read those five words with me. How do you know me? During worship, I was looking at that, and that really stuck out. How do you know me? Jeff could ask that question this morning. How do you know me? Julie, how do you know me? Abby, how do you know me? John, how do you know me? He knows everybody. And, and we could understand God's everywhere at all times. He's omni-knowledgeable, omnipresent, sort of like Walmart. But that, that is this intellectual stuff that poses as reality it will dawn on you at some point in your life that he knows you. Now, there are people I have really liked, and the more I got to know them, I didn't like them at all. I'm glad I didn't marry that. Listen, let me say that again. There are people I really liked, and later on when I got to know them, I didn't like them at all. But God is different. He comes in knowing all that stuff that makes people not like you and loves you yet because He knows you. How? I don't know. That's the question. How does He do it? You may have committed some terrible deed. God loves you. You may have not even done the worst thing you're ever going to do in your life, and he still knows it. He loves you. He loves up front. He looks at the sum total of who you are, what you will or won't do, and goes, I really love that person. And that really touched me this morning. How do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, now you know the Greek has no punctuation, right? 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 I looked it all up. There's no punctuation, no commas, periods at the end. And so I put my own punctuation in here, and I'm right. And all those other people need to catch up. 
How do you know me? Jesus said to him, before Philip called you. What, did, what happened? Philip called him. I found the Messiah from Nazareth. What does Nathaniel say? Can any, anything good come from that hellhole? Nazareth was a nasty place. Jesus grew up in a bad neighborhood, ladies and gentlemen. He was a root out of dry ground. Isaiah 53. No former comeliness. And when we saw him, there was nothing about him that was appealing until he got anointed. I bet Jesus wasn't even handsome. According to Isaiah 53. And that wasn't his description on the cross. That was later when his visage was marred beyond recognition. How do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I heard what you said about me. But here is what I have to say about you. Would you see a godless, true-hearted Israelite whose one object is to be right with God, to be taught by Him, and to be led by Him? This is He. Do you understand Jesus sees things in us we don't see in ourselves? To, to the biggest fraud tax collector, he says, son of Abraham. To Simon Peter, who one day was up, the next day was down, calls him a rock. He sees what you can do. He says to James and John, you've been fishing in the ocean. You follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they touch the entire world. They're still touching the entire world. They're still capturing the hearts of men 2,000 years later through what they did, how they believed, how they conducted themselves. Because Jesus knew who they were. Jesus knew what they could do. And Jesus got them there even when they stumbled and fell. I really like Jesus. Now, I was reading some Bible verses here earlier. Let me try to find them. I have them on my phone. So who are you? Well, you're, you're alive with Christ, according to Ephesians 2.5. You're alive. You're free from the law of sin and death, according to Romans 8, 2. According to Isaiah 54, 14, you're far from oppression, and fear does not even come close to you. According to 1 John 5, 18, you're born of God, and the evil one doesn't touch you. According to Ephesians 1, 4 and 1 Peter 1, 16, you're holy and without blame. Before him in love. You have the mind of Christ. You have peace that passes all understanding. You have the greater one alive in you who is greater than he that's in the world. You're the recipient of a free gift of righteousness and through it reign in life by Christ Jesus. 
You've received the spirit of wisdom and revelation and his knowledge. The eyes of your understanding are being enlightened. This being enlightened right now. You've received the power of the Holy Spirit to lay hands on sick and see them recover, to cast out demons, to speak with new tongues, to have power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. Now, see, our experience doesn't confirm that, and that's just the problem. We consult our experience and continue having them, Instead of doing war with what ails us through who Jesus says we are and who he sees us to be. You you know, your names are written in heaven. That's what the Bible says. You know, your tears he catches in a bottle. He numbers the hairs on your head. All of those things reveal the heart and intent of God. That really strikes me. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? Because he does. He knows you. He loves you. He loves you. He doesn't love what you'll become. Because that doesn't work. That's legalism. That's a religious concept that really just does not work. No, he loves you the way you are. He may not be happy about it. I mean, come on. But the idea is when you see that he receives and loves you as you are, the transformation begins. The transformation begins. Okay. Everybody all right? Why don't we stand and uh, we'll pray together. We do have ministry teams today. If you would like prayer, generally the ministry team gathers over in this side of the uh, auditorium here. I remember in Ephesians, I believe it is chapter 1. Actually, I read part of that verse a minute ago. Paul prayed. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that. Queen City Church, everyone in here, I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in you? And what is... His exceeding greatness of power towards you who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Father, open our eyes. Jesus, we want to have encounters with you. We want to hear personally, each one of us personally and separately and distinctly through whatever ways and means you have at your disposal. We want to know you. We want to see who we are in you. We want to know what you see in us so that we can live up to that high vision, high calling. In Jesus' name.
Amen. And here's an addendum, Lord. Help us get into that building. We pray that uh, uh, the floors will be completed, that the doors will be put up, that the air conditioning will be completed, that the stage and the sound system, the painting, the sidewalks, the cleaning, the bike racks, the fire alarm, the drop ceiling, all of that will be finished in a hurry and ask that father in Jesus name. Thank you, Lord. You've been great doing this. It's amazing. Amen. Amen. Okay, folks, have a great week. You got a half hour start on the lunch crowd. Grab somebody you don't like and take them to lunch with you or someone you do.